Kathy, it is hot in New York. My goodness. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm up here in Vermont and it is as warm in Vermont as it is down there. And <laughs> we don't traditionally have air conditioning. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting to, to have to go through a period of time when you're not used to it, air conditioning. Well, I want to welcome everyone to Drink Like a Lady, Season 3, Episode 8. These podcasts are designed for you as a female leader, not only to get a seat at the bar, but to get a seat in the boardroom. And today, Kathy, we're talking about calm, our eight tips to being calm as a leader as we transition back into the office. And I think you have a story as you are preparing the notes for this. Yeah, I, I'm really into this idea of how we can control. Everyone has all of the same attributes, but whether or not there are individuals who can control leadership skills. So um, I was at the doctor's office with my husband and this woman says, oh yeah, I'm the woman who has 10 children. And we both were like, okay, 10 children. <laughs> so immediately I said to her, I said, how do you do it? And, and she said, I remain calm. So once again, based on our theme, I said, you know, that's interesting. And she says, yeah, as a nurse and a doctor, you have to remain calm in order to make the best decisions. And we know that based on even last week's um, podcast, we talked about the precordial uh, part of our brain that needs to be in a calm, uh, flat in, uh, mode. Space, the prefrontal cortex, which is where we make all of our decisions. Yeah. So, really needs to be in that upswing after you've experienced a period of yeah, stress exactly. because that's when your best decision making is going to happen is when that calm washes over you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So today we are offering eight tips on ways that you too can remain calm when your team, when your environment, when the transition is challenging you. There's an article that you uh, were citing from McKinsey before we kick off our list. Yeah, the McKinsey article was really, really spot on. And the fact that we're coming out of COVID, that we've been all uprooted, you know, global economy, you know, multimedia components. How do we remain calm with all of this negativity coming into us? And um, what we've done is we've gone through some of the key points off of that article at McKinsey. And, and we're going to talk about that today. Number one is to build that awareness muscle. We are coming off of what, 18 months of a, over a year of being in a very different environment. And what I'm hearing anecdotally is that people don't necessarily want to come back. They kind of liked the routines that they've established at home and they find themselves to be very productive. Yeah. And, and what happens is you've got to find out what is really going on in your industry and how do you, it goes back to the psychological safety and the fact that everybody's looking for the norm. We had restructured the norm during this uh, in the pandemic. And now what we have to do is be very aware of, even when people are coming back, there's still exhaustion, there's burnout. Um, and there's actually, you know, reduced effectiveness when people are in those uh, conditions. Yeah, absolutely. So number two, and I want to make sure I put the banners up here because we want to be able to keep track of this all is so number one was to build awareness. Number two is to set boundaries. And I mean, clear ones. I actually added this to the list yesterday because, you know, I'm in front of my membership all week long with different women leaders and I'm hearing them tell me where they're struggling and setting boundaries is a big one, especially for my generation. Well, that's interesting because what I have also found in the decision-making process is it's almost like 
people can't make a decision all of a sudden. And yet they have the skills. So the point is to actually empower them to make decisions um, based on telling them where you're going and what that looks like and only when they need to come back to you in order to, uh, you know, to get your feedback. Yeah, I remember taking this productivity course with Ari Mizell, and he was like, if you lay out very at the outset, here's the task, here's the deliverable, here's when to bother me, here's when you are on autopilot and can make your own decisions. So if you lay those bumper guards around, you know, the task, that gives the person not only um, stewardship, but it gives it empowers them to be able to take risks. And maybe even be a little bit creative, but you've got to be able to set those boundaries of when you're supposed to be knocking on my door or you're supposed to be emailing me. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's so true from all points of view. It's like when a parent says, don't knock on my door unless the house is on fire. Your brother's in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I've had that happen. I'm sure you have too. So number three is to keep things simple. And I find that as a journalist, I have to do this every single day with with women when they're asking questions. I'm hearing you say 15 sentences, but it really sounds like it's one. So how can you keep things simple? That is, you know, that is really important. What we have now is a uh, communication overload. And I find that in emails and I finally had to ask someone out of um, my audit group. I said to them, you know, don't send me a novel, send me the points of which you want me to act on it. Because not only is he sending it in a way that he's trying to get it off his chest, once again, you know, that's where it is, but I'm less effective in getting him what he wants. So it's really important, you know, write your email, then relook at it, write your communication tools. And then, you know, sometimes a yes or no is just as good as a whole, you know, novel on what the conversation's about. I always say to my public speaking students to think about the takeaway and then reverse engineer from there. Whatever exercise you're about to engage in, you're about to meet your boss, you're about to meet a client. What is the primary takeaway that you need them to walk away with? And then and then you start to build the story from there, as opposed to sort of arriving and hoping that things, you know, kind of work out for themselves. And you're very good at this. Um, Even when we're planning all of this, you're very good at sort of synthesizing. And that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Delegation. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have this conversation because everybody is a control freak, especially if you're a type A woman. Nobody wants to let go of control, but that's really not a way to get things done. You really got to be able to delegate. Well, in order to do big things, you need big group of resources. And one of those are other people to power train it through. Um, And here's the other thing we've talked about this, put the right team in place. You know, if you put the right team in place, what will happen is all of a sudden they'll understand your dynamics. And I always say that, you know, it's very important to communicate the why of what you're doing, because all of a sudden they'll say, oh, that's that's why she did it or that's how she approached it. And maybe um, they can instantly, you know, be able to be comfortable about that delegation tool you've given them. And I'll also layer on top of that. Sometimes it's important to explain, like I just did a meeting with my VAs this morning. One is transitioning out, one's transitioning in. And I was like, the number one thing that we need to worry about is the making sure that the mechanism that processes membership is top of mind and smooth before one of you leaves, because that is 63% of my revenue pie. And mm-hmm. so I gave her the why as to why that was my topmost concern and what's keeping me up at night as, the, as there's the changing of the guard. I also want to add to to the whole delegation component is, and when there is a success metric, what you share it to the people you've delegated it to so they understand how they were part of that success model. 
I love that. Maybe that goes back to that memo that you send. You're like, here are the bumper guards and here's when you are successful. This is yeah. how you'll know. Exactly. Okay, number five is what I like to call the football postmortem. And, and then you want to delay in the meditation. I mean, when I say football postmortem, after any pro game, the team sits down and they look at what went right. Mm -hmm. They look at what went wrong. And what are they going to do the next time that situation rears its ugly head or not ugly head on the football field? And I don't know that we ever stop to actually do these kinds of postmortems. And, and that's, you know, actually they have playbooks and um, pretty much in every world that I've been, I've brought this idea of a playbook to the, to um, the organization or, or company. Um, what that does also is it allows us to actually calm our brain down, you know, and our mind. And it allows us, especially through medita meditation, it actually accelerates where we could have done better. It actually allows us to remain actually very needlepoint focused on what possible solutions are. And there's not always one solution, but there may be additional solutions on that postmortem. And any successful leader, Steve Jobs is the first one that comes to mind, meditates. And I don't know that I really knew why until I became, you know, the leader of my own company. It's just, you're making so many decisions throughout the day. You really need that bandwidth to be able to do it. And meditation affords you that. Yeah. And it's a clearing. It's actually a clearing. And it doesn't always take a lot of time. Everyone thinks, oh, my gosh, it takes me a half hour. No, you can, you can even start to practice it 10 minutes a day, twice, two, three times a day. And sometimes you know, daydreaming is also considered a form of meditation. But really, it makes you less reactive, I think, yes. as a, you know, like you'll pause before you respond and really think about what your response is going to be, because it's hard to take that back once it's out there. But also for me, just builds that self-awareness muscle like, oh, joy, you're going down that rabbit hole again, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, rather than just functioning on autopilot. And it allows the stress level, which is what we're talking about throughout this series, is it allows it to, you know, um, dissipate. And that's really what you want to do. You want to get back down, you want to recover, and you want to be ready for the next um, challenge. I always call it a challenge. Yeah. All right. Managing expectations is tip number six. I mean... I'll be the first to say that I often have way too many expectations, both of myself and others around me. And my grandmother once said to me, Joya, do not have expectations of people who barely have expectations of themselves. They are always going to let you down. Save yourself a world of disappointment and stop holding other people to those bars. That is a very wise, wise um, statement she has said to you. I wish I wish you had passed that on earlier to me. <laughs> in our relationship. But what's really important is to understand what your operating model is, and then those individuals around you who you can depend on. So you have to manage the expectations based on the people. And that is why, as you increase your effectiveness, you want to make sure that the individuals working with you do the same as well. Yeah. And so what is your personal operating model yeah. when it comes to crisis, you know, as opposed to just kind of launching into it and reacting, 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 you know, what is it that you can do to hit the hit? I think you had said this, you know, someone had pointed out that you'd hit a wall and it really forced you to hit the reset button. And that was just a few weeks ago. You know, we talk about this, you know, we practice this. And yet even ourselves with everything going on, you know, there are those times. So when someone said they gave me words, you hit a wall. I was like, ah, someone has noticed that in me. Um, mm -hmm. And basically, I can use that now. And that's why I'm in Vermont, hopefully yeah. de-stressing a little bit. 
I'm so jealous. <laughs> Being purpose-driven, um, I just had a speaker, Tara Moore, who wrote the book Playing Big, and she said, you know, we are as human beings primed for fight or flight. But yes. if we get any kind of feedback that is maybe offensive, maybe not, you know, what we wanted to hear, how can we, instead of being defeated or instead of being defensive, get curious and really try to understand the purpose at the end of the day, as opposed to getting derailed by a comment. And that is really important because when we default to our triggers, that's when we're stressed out. So mm -hmm. she, she's very wise in saying to, you know, you got to pull that stress down. You got to make sure you're in a place where you have actually fed yourself some good information and understand where you're going. Um, I also, you know, listened to Oprah over the weekend and she said, once I made a decision to be on intention, which is purpose driven, what's my intention in any relationship, I no longer gave up and became a victim of other people's wants. Same thing. And, um, you know, sometimes those powerful comments just change you forever, all in a good way, once again. Yeah, I think the additional line that Tara had said is that, you know, feedback is really giving you information about the priorities and preferences of the other person. It isn't actually maybe even about you. So if this person is your target audience, then you have to integrate it. But if it's not part of your target audience, then you just got to leave it by the curbside and really stay focused on what it is that your purpose is and how that's kind of driving the end results that you want. And I think what also is important that everybody can see, you know, we all have blind spots. So not everybody can see an entire picture until they've had conversations. Once again, bringing that to the idea of learning um, and, and being a continuous learner uh, and then making hopefully what we what we hope is an objective decision. Yeah. And I, I think when we're younger we often don't have all that self-awareness, like everything is like taken personally. But over time, you know, when it's not your first rodeo anymore, you're able to kind of stay focused on why you're doing what you're doing. Exactly, exactly. All right, number eight is to really manage yourself. Um, how can you continue to flex that muscle and be outside of your comfort zone so when something blindsides you, it doesn't derail you completely? You know, one of the things I was, I was talking to my husband last night and I said, the best thing that ever happened to me in my management career, and I've had a very long one, um, was that I could say I made a mistake. I mean, what happened was then I wasn't defensive. If I actually made that mistake or if there was an error or if there was something I was missing rather than immediately going to, um, to a defensive mode, because once you become in a defensive mode versus defending, you then actually give up your power. So mm -hmm. managing yourself is to become extremely aware and then become very self-conscious of what your key trigger points are and what you're talking to yourself about. Yeah, mind over matter. And this is a That's tough one because, and I'm hearing this all week long, is that people find themselves being very emotional. Like things are very emotional. And this goes back to what we were talking about with burnout, right? Like when you're yeah. on the edge of burnout, everything is you know a level four or a level five uh, disaster. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. And you're reacting more emotionally. But how can you learn to really manage yourself whenever you're in a tough situation? And you actually have a story about this from um, yes. the time that you were COO of a company in New York. Yeah. So I, I went in uh, as a COO and I, I, having had so much experience, understood that there were certain things that had to happen operationally. Um, and when we took a look at our three story building, 
um, what happened was that there were exits outside that were not actually conducive to someone getting out. Should we have a fire, a disaster, any of that? So I brought in the fire inspector uh, and uh, we did a walkthrough and we came up with an entire plan, my team and I. Um, I also, the, the CEO was like, why did you do that? There was no reason to do that. You know, once again, very, you know, like you shouldn't have done that. Between two and three weeks later, we put a full plan in place. We let people know what they had to do, and we had a monitoring system. There was a fire two buildings over, and they asked us to actually get evacuate. What was really great was within 20 to a half hour, we knew where every project manager was within the city, whether they had come out. We could feel confident that there was no one inside, and and it, it was seamless. And it actually, it was like a team winning the Super Bowl because we knew safety was important, and we knew that there was a confidence, a calmness throughout the whole um, incident. Uh, with And I have still pictures of fire trucks outside. I love it. So you built the plan, yes. you road tested the plan, yes. even in the face of your naysayers, and you were able to be totally calm because you knew there was a plan in place. And I think that that's probably a huge defining factor for why the pandemic just like really gave a lot of people analysis paralysis because they hadn't put in any kinds of plans if all systems went down or everything changed. And there's not a lot of people, I think, who understand that when you practice going into these uncomfortable situations, whether it's practicing, uh, you know, beforehand, like I did in this case, and that came from years of experience, and then practicing this with the team, um, you can actually, there could be a bigger disaster, and, uh, you know, no one was hurt, but there could be something bigger that we feel confident now as a group working on this. So um, it, that actually elevates um, the amount of calmness we can, we can you know, exhibit amongst all of our uh, employees as, and peers. And you can feel really empowered by it too. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know that would give me some calmness. <laughs> all right. Next week, we're already up to episode nine. Good Lord. Where's the time going? What are we talking about next week? We're going to be talking about teams and creating the optimum team. So we've, we've sort of touched on that today in terms of delegation. If you can't delegate to someone and they're not the right team member, you got to talk about that and you got to make some hard decisions or put skills in place. The other thing is the optimum team. Are they teams? Are they there for you as well? And uh, also passing on what you know as an executive leader in order to make that work for them. Kathy, if anyone wants to work with you, how do they get a hold of you? They can call me directly, 609-933-7600 or at my email, stuartkathy at gmail.com. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me and work with me on your public speaking, I would love to hear from you. And you can email me at joy at joyadas.com. This all nests under a larger leadership platform that I have for women. And I'm always happy to share about that as well. All right, Kathy, I am jealous that you're in Vermont. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a forum or something up here one time. We'll pull the, we'll put a lot of very um, ambitious women and have them come on up. I would love that. Like have a bonfire. We'll sit around. Yes. That sounds wonderful. Sounds good. Have a great week. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye now.